How you doing? Good. It is, it is great to have all you folks here in Elgin. It is also great to have you folks in Rolling Meadows, Crystal Lake, Chicago Cathedral, Aurora, and the North Shore. Didn't leave you guys out this time, North Shore. I need to explain before we get started here um, my attire. Uh, normally, I don't wear sports shirts, but it has been 20 years since the Seattle, my beloved Seattle Mariners have been in the playoffs, and if they win today, there is an outside chance that they actually might do it. So I got my Ken Griffey Jr. shoes on, and I got my Seattle Mariners shirt, which is going to guarantee their terrible loss later today. Um, I have that effect on most of the teams that I cheer for, but you'll have to apologize the, the attire, but there are some things that are so important they need to be represented in church. Look, you're going to need a Bible, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 14, all the way to 41 today. I don't know if you know the name Jonathan Edwards. You probably should. Even if, just, just because you're an American, you probably should know the name Jonathan Edwards. He was the greatest theologian that the United States ever produced. He, uh, he lived in the 18th century, so uh, the 1700s there, 1720 to a little, bit, a little bit later, prior to the Declaration of Independence and all those things. He was a Puritan. He'd come over from England, and he, uh, or the, he was a, 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 an ancestor of those who'd come, his ancestors had come over from England and uh, had established, of course, the churches in the Northeast today, New England area. He was the pastor of a church called... Uh, Northampton Church in that, in that area. He took over for his grandfather in that church. Um, you know, the churches then, were, they were not huge, but everyone was basically a Christian. But after a while, after the Puritans came over from England, they were very, you know, engaged and very passionate about their faith. But as time goes on, you know what it's like with peace comes upon the land and you're not persecuted anymore as Christians. Everybody kind of starts getting kind of there's a malaise that takes over. There are, so that there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians but just actually aren't. Well, that was the way it was in his, in his area at the time. And then um, God did an amazing thing. We call it today the first great awakening. This guy George Whitfield came from England and he started to preach in fields. No kidding, fields. And 30,000 people would surround him. This guy named Benjamin Franklin who was so doubting that he actually got 30,000, that he went himself and counted the people. And even Benjamin Franklin, the great skeptic, said, yeah, there's 30,000 people there. Whitfield was remarkable, and he brought with him, God had put his hand on this guy, and he brought with him what can only be stated as one of the greatest revivals in the history of the world. And it started to spread through the Northeast when he visited there, all through the Northeast. And Jonathan Edwards' church was one of the churches that was affected by it. But there was this one church in, called, in an area called Enfield where the revival just did not break through. It was affecting all these people and all these churches all around the region. But this church in Enfield was not, they were stubborn. They were proudly stubborn. So they asked if Jonathan Edwards would come and he would preach at their church on a, on a Sunday morning. He preached a sermon that he had preached prior in his church in Northampton. The sermon is called... The sinner's in the hands of an angry God. It's one that you have to read if you go to high school. Or you used to anyway. 
It's kind of a famous sermon. Usually when people teach it in high school or college, they're like, look at how horrible it is that this guy talked about hell. And he does. He does talk about hell. But what, here's what, what's crazy about what happened when he gets to Enfield. He was not the most amazing orator. Jonathan Edwards, he was pretty dry and staid and he was real smart, egghead kind of guy. But he starts in on this sermon and he gets halfway through it and he can't finish because there are so many people. As he's describing, as he's describing what people deserve for their rebellion to, against God, people in the, in the aisles are like falling down on the ground and they are crying out in agony. Save us. What can be done? These kinds of things. There are posts in the middle of the Enfield Hall. And people were clinging on to the posts so that they wouldn't fall into hell. It was a mass conversion that day. So much so, in fact, it became known as one of the greatest moves of the Spirit of God in modern history. That's a pastor's dream, i got to be honest with you, <laughs> right? You know, you labor really hard to try to bring the word of God to people, and what you're hoping is that, that, that the spirit of God will touch it and it will affect the hearts of people, that their affections would be moved so much that it would transform their lives. But as a pastor, usually what you get is not that. Instead, it's, it's usually the guy in the aisle doing this. Seriously, there's a guy in my whole church he was like the fourth row down, and he'd sit on the aisle every week at the 9 o'clock service, and right as soon as I'd start, he'd right away. There were times I was like, come on, man, just give me a chance. There was one day he actually, he actually was with me for about 15 minutes in the sermon, and I was so shocked I lost my plaques because he was still awake. And I, I was like, what is this? The Spirit has touched this man. Anyway... We dream for these mass moments of the Spirit of God coming upon people and ha making a huge impact. That's what this passage is about. It's actually considered the first Christian sermon. Peter preaches to a group of people who are wowed because of what has just happened as the Spirit of God has come upon a whole bunch of the disciples and they're speaking in other languages that they don't know. And the passage ends by saying, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Mm. May it be again. So what I want to do is I want to ask the question, how did that happen? What was the message that achieved that outcome? And ultimately, what do we learn from the first Christian Sermon. I'm going to do this in two stages, all right? The, the sermon he preaches, this passage really falls very neatly into two steps. Number one, judgment is coming, is what Peter's going to preach. And second, but deliverance is available. Judgment is coming, but, but deliverance is available. Here's the first one of those. Judgment is coming. Verse 14 of Acts chapter 2. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice, his voice and addressed them. Let's ask the question, who's them? And why are they standing with the 11? Um, 
immediately prior to this passage, what you've got is, as I said, the Spirit of God coming upon all of these disciples, about 120 of them, kind of in an upper room, waiting for the Spirit to come. They were told to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit to come. So the Spirit comes upon them, and what happens is tongues as of fire. That's the way they describe it. So I don't know, tongue, wind comes in the room, and there are people's uh, heads are being touched with some sort of fiery-looking thing. And they're able to speak in languages they don't know, right? So it would be like me starting to speak Portuguese here. I don't know any Portuguese. Cristiano Ronaldo, that's what I know in Portuguese, all right? But I, they started speaking in other languages. Now, of course, in Jerusalem at the time, there had been all sorts of people who had traveled to come and visit the, the city for the, the festival of Pentecost, it was a week-long festival, and so the, the city swelled in size, and there's all sorts of people coming into the city, and you can imagine coming into the city and hearing your language. Nobody else speaks your language. You've come from way, way far away, and someone, actually this woman who looks a little bit tired, is, is, is speaking in your language. Like, she doesn't look like the kind of person who should know your language. So, of course, you're like, huh, let's go see what's going on over there. And everybody started coming around. Now, some people said, these guys are drunk. There's a reason they said that, by the way, because they were Galileans. And Galileans were seen by people in the first century the same way that you might view a West Virginian. With all due respect to West Virginia, I... Never been there, but they seem like lovely people. But you know, when people make fun of Americans, they, they, they usually go, oh, hi, guys, how you doing? Like they do this deep southern accent. I have a friend, in fact, who had to get rid of his West Virginia accent so people would take him seriously in, in, the, in the academic world. No, no joke, he said that. It was a barrier to me because every time I'd open my mouth, people wouldn't take me seriously. Right? I mean, Galileans were kind of rednecks. They had couches on their porches, right? <laughs> like motors in their bathtubs, and they, that's the way they were viewed. You hey, Cletus, you don't really understand. So when they hear these Galileans speaking in other languages, well, there's no way that these people have studied other languages, so what they conclude is they must be drunk, which is really typical for Galileans, you know. Getting a little blasted early, are you guys? And that was their conclusion. But Peter, standing with the eleven, he lifts up his voice and he addresses them, all of these people who've gathered, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose. Look, it's only the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. Even Galileans don't get sauced at 9 a.m., guys. They're not drunk, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Hey guys, you're standing here right now, he tells them, and what's happening in front of you was predicted hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years prior. You are at this nexus in history where your God predicted this moment and you're watching it happen. It was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. All kinds of people 
Not just the Spirit being poured out on David when he writes a psalm, or not just the Spirit being poured out on the guys who are fixing the tabernacle. No, not that kind of intermittent Spirit coming upon. But now the Spirit is coming upon all kinds of people. You say, what kinds of people? Um, your sons and daughters will prophesy, boys and girls. Uh, your young men shall see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Young, young and old. Uh, even on my male servants... And female servants in those days. It doesn't matter where you're from. You could be the, from nowhere. Be a slave. And the Spirit will come upon you. In those days I'll pour out my Spirit. And they, all of these people, they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above. And signs on the earth below. What kind? Blood. Fire. Vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before, here it is, all that was just said will happen before the day of the Lord comes. That day, it, it's great and it's magnificent. This word magnificent is probably better translated awesome. Dreadful in some translations. So what Peter's argument basically here is, look, the thing that you're seeing right now, the thing that you're witnessing right now was predicted long before. And when it was predicted, it was all about what would happen prior to the day of the Lord. Now, you and I should at that point go, huh, day of the Lord. They understood what that meant. That hit their ears differently than us. So let me, let me try to tell you how it hit their ears. He's quoting from the end of Joel 2. I want to go to the beginning of Joel 2 and show you what the day of the Lord is supposed to be. Joel says, blow a trumpet in, in Zion, sound an alarm on my, on my holy mountain, right? So Zion is the mountain that was just near, just in Jerusalem, okay? Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For, there it is, the day of the Lord is coming. It's near. It's a day of darkness and gloom. A, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness. There is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will again or be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and, and behind them a flame burns, right? So you've got behind them and before them. They, they are an army that will come, and they will just burn everything to the ground. In fact, before them, um, the land is like the Garden of Eden. But behind them, it's a desolate wilderness. They just raise everything. They just destroy everything. And nothing escapes them. The earth quakes before them, before this army. The heavens, they tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. See, that's the language that he uses, right? When Peter quotes it. Sun and moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. Probably because there's a lot of smoke in the air. The Lord utters his voice before whose army? His army. Wait a minute, I thought Israel was his army. No, no, no. His army is going to come and destroy Israel. Wait, what? 
on the day of the Lord, God will bring his army from outside of Israel to bring judgment upon the people of Israel for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. And who can endure it? And the answer? Nobody. So here's what Peter's doing here. He's saying that everything that you guys are witnessing in this present moment is a signal that the day of the Lord is at hand. And the day of the Lord is a moment of judgment for the wicked. I want to pause there for just a second and I want to ask a question about, well, maybe not about, but to our modern society. Um, what do we think about in, in the West of these days when we hear language of judgment? I, I would suggest that we probably, we kind of treat the judgment of God, that idea, as uh, kind of a joke. Like seriously, you think about uh, who proclaims the judgment of God, right? Hellfire and brimstone preachers, that's who. They're kind of dumb. Um, the guy with the sandwich board on his, on, standing on the edge of the city block, and he's got a beard coming everywhere, and he's like, judgment is coming, right? That guy. There's a billboard <laughs> in Auckland, New Zealand, when I lived there, there was a billboard. I do not know who made it, but it was right along one of the motorways. And so, big billboard, and it said, Jesus is coming soon. And on the bottom it said, look busy. Yeah, he's, he's coming soon. <laughs> busy, right? He's like the foreman who comes back and you haven't been doing your job, but you, he's dupable. You can dupe him by just pretending that you've been doing the shoveling the whole time. It's a bit of a joke. You bring the judgment of God up in any kind of polite conversation, people will be like, oh, whatever. I think there are reasons for that. I actually think that some of the reasons are that there have been pastors in, the, in years past who have really kind of tried to attack the judgment of God. It's all he talked about. At least we were told that. I don't know if that's the case anymore because I'm, I'm almost 50. I'm 49 years old. And I have not really ever heard anyone talk about the judgment of God. It's about the love of God all the time. Of course God is love. But, but judgment? That's not really what happens. I actually think that in the, in the modern West, we think that God would never judge because he's not actually that upset. I mean, just think about the images that we have of, of God. You know, you watch The Simpsons, remember that show? He's always portrayed as this, you know, kind old guy with a big old, you know, he's a grandfather with a massive beard. The first time I ever met my wife's now deceased grandfather was when we went and visited him in Seattle. He had remarried into a family that had a whole bunch of children, and his new wife kept bringing the children in and asking her new husband, Joe, my wife's grandfather, to pay for their whole lives. And he bought a, a shop for them. It was not a very good shop. We went and visited the shop, and all of these you know, adult children were all around just hanging out. There were no customers in this shop at all. It's just the family, and Joe sat on a stool at the edge of the shop, smiling, kind of, you know, 
partly in dementia, and people would come, these guys would come over to Joe, and they'd say, hey, Grandpa Joe, and they'd say, seriously, pat him on the head. He's 70-something years old. Pat him on the head, and then look over to me and smile and almost wink, like, we're totally taking this old guy to the bank. Made me very angry. But that's the way we view God, largely. He's, he's highly dupable. He's like an old... Grandfather sits on the porch with his lemonade, watches the kids play in the front yard, and has got a pocket full of Werther's Originals, you know? That's God. He'd never get that mad. And if he did get mad, we'd just explain it to him, and he'd understand. God's not that upset. He's especially not that upset because we're pretty great. Right? I mean, we mow our lawn. We take care of the climate, or at least we post online that we do, right before we burn plastic bottles. That's what we did at the men's camp, but don't, don't pretend I didn't say that. Um, we're, pretty, we're pretty good people. We're taught that from when we're, we're quite young these days. In fact, there was a woman named uh, Jean Twenge. She wrote a book named Generation Me. It's on self-esteem. Generation Me was trying to Figure out why is it that so many millennials these days, so many of the younger generation, think so highly of themselves when they don't always have reason to think that highly of themselves. And so she tried to get into figuring out what that was. And so she looked into education, the early education, and she found that self-esteem and its teaching around it has become like the paramount thing that you have to do with, with kids these days. And so she found that in, in almost every school that she looked into, there were coloring books and posters that basically had the message, you are special. You are a princess. You are a prince. Everything is right with you. No matter what it is that you want to do, that is a good thing. However you feel in this moment, that needs to be protected, and we need to make a safe space for it. In psychology... The language has moved from any kind of guilt or responsibility for the things that you do to you're broken. You're wounded. You're a, you're a victim. And those might be true, but it, they're all passive, right? The, the, we are what we are because these forces outside of us have acted on us, and we are the victim. We're the ones who've been broken. We didn't break. We didn't do any breaking we, we're the broken. Even in religion, she found that in this weird way, there's this passage of scripture that says, um, love others as yourself. That's quoted frequently by people who, who aren't in the church and who, whatever. Love one another as you would love yourself. And people take that and they say, yeah, you need to love yourself. Wait a minute. No, the, the command is to love one another. It's assuming you love yourself. Yeah, I have to love myself. And why wouldn't I love myself? Because I'm awesome. And so we grow up thinking that. She actually, she wrote, students look and act like what the self-esteem theories say they should look and act like. They tend to act as though they believe they have worthy and good inner essences, regardless of what people say or how they behave. That they deserve recognition and attention from others, and that their unique individual needs should be considered first and foremost. Emerging adults take for granted that the self comes first. And we often believe exactly what we were so carefully taught, that we are special. 
But do you see, guys, if you put all of that together, all of that background together, all of that upbringing together, all those culture forces together, what you get is a belief that God is too nice to judge a great guy like me. But i, I got to tell you, and that's why the Bible is such a shock to so many people in the modern West. Because you open it, and it says, you're not that great. I mean, you were made in the image of God, but what you've done is you've turned away from the God who made you, who said, you will only find your joy in me. And you've turned away, spat in his face, and tried to find your joy everywhere else. And every time that you're unable to do it, instead of turning around in repentance and coming back to him, you try to find some other place to find it. If money didn't do it, then sex will do it. If sex didn't do it, then my job will do it. If the job didn't do it, let's try money again. So we've broken his world and we've broken our relationships and we've broken and we've broken and we've broken. And the Bible says, look, when, I, when it describes what the prodigal son did when he came to his father. Remember that? The first time he comes to his dad and says, give me the money. I don't care if you live or die. I just want what's mine. And he walks out the door. That's what we did to God. Now you tell me, what is a just God going to do about that? If we've raped the world, what does a just judge do about rape? Well, he'll hold you responsible. When? When the day of the Lord comes. And Peter's saying, he's here. You know, I told you earlier about Jonathan Edwards, the section that he preached in his sermon, right? The section that he preached that caused everybody, he couldn't get past this one section. Here's what he said. He said, you have, you have offended him, God. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you didn't go to hell last night. That, that you woke again this morning in the world after you closed your eyes to sleep last night. And there's no other reason to be given why you've not dropped into hell since you arose this morning. But that God's hand has held you up. Oh sinner, consider the fearful danger you're in. It's a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the already damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you've ever done, nothing you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Consider what danger you are in. See, Edwards wasn't able to finish the sermon. They didn't get to hear the good part. The beauty is that Peter did get to finish his sermon. So what did he say? Okay, so, so he starts with that the statement, judgment is coming. And I said, secondly, but, but deliverance is, is available. Look really quickly at verse 21 with me. Oops, where are we? Here we're down here. 
the last line of his, of his dealing with them in that first section is said, but and, and it, when he's talking about Joel too, he says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not all that. The bad news is you're wicked, guilty sinners, and a righteous God needs to, should treat you exactly like wicked, guilty sinners should be treated, and you have no way out of it except if you call upon the name of the Lord. Now, here's the question you need to ask at that point. Okay. First of all, who's that? And second, what, what does it mean to call upon him? And those are the two things that he deals with all the way through the end of this passage. So here's the first one. Who is the Lord? To all these people who are standing in front of him. Who is the Lord? Well, uh, he goes through the life of Jesus to make that point. That in fact, Jesus is men of Israel. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourself know. Who's the Lord? He gives it away right at the front end. He's Jesus of Nazareth. How do you know? Well, God attested to you by his mighty works. Seriously, guys, all the stuff that he did, he's saying all the stuff that Jesus did. Isn't that a little bit weird? You know, the multiplication of all the loaves and fish, the calming of the storm. Remember the part where the, where, where the guy, there's four guys, they can't get into the place to see Jesus, but they've got their, their lame buddy with them, and so they climb up on the top of the roof, and they start digging through the roof. Can you imagine this during your small group, right? What is what is that? And all of a sudden, the dirt's falling down on you, and you're, you're like, what in the world? And then all of a sudden, they start lowering a dude on a pallet through the roof. And he's like, look out below. And they drop him right in front of Jesus. And Jesus says to the guy, your sins are forgiven. And all of the Pharisees, all of these guys he's talking to right now, they're all standing around going, Who, what right does this guy have to forgive sins? And Jesus is like, yeah, I know what you're thinking. I don't have the right to forgive sins, but to prove to you who I really am, stand up and walk, son. Bing! Starts running a marathon. You've seen all this. He's saying, you guys have seen all of this. What do you think those works were? They were attesting to you that he is the Lord. So in his ministry, he was attesting you. This Jesus also was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. See, this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Oh, let's not get, let's not get this wrong. It's not like you guys duped God. It's not like you somehow figured out, oh, you know what? If we get this Judas guy and he turns on him, it's all going to be... No, no, no. This whole thing happened by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God who planned it from the beginning of creation together with the Son and the Holy Spirit. This was their plan. But you're not off the hook. See, you're the ones who crucified and killed him. By lawless men, the Romans you handed him over to, you killed him by their wicked hands. But God raised him up. You handed him over, but God handed him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David, so he's going to quote the Old Testament. David, think about back when David wrote this psalm. He says concerning him, him being Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me. 
For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. My flesh will dwell in hope. Why? For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. Wait a minute. David died. Who's he talking about? You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, says Peter, I I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, he was speaking about someone else and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. You should know that God raised him from the dead because he predicted it when he wrote, David wrote this all those years ago. He was not abandoned to Hades, David. I'm sorry, uh, Jesus. He was not abandoned to, to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God's, God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. He's pointing to all of his buddies. We've seen him alive after we saw him dead. We saw him alive. I'm not asking you to believe in something that can't be proven through science. The tomb is empty, says Peter. We've touched his hands. We ate fish with the guy, for goodness sake. Being therefore exalted. It didn't end there, see, because Jesus was lifted up on high. We watched him ascend into the clouds, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. That's the seat of authority, the seat of of privilege, the right hand. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So let all the house of Israel know. Here's the conclusion. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both. You wanted to know who the Lord was? God has made him both Lord and Christ. Christ means deliverer. This Jesus whom you crucified. Mm, I think you might have made an error, guys. Because the one who's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, lifted up on high, and all his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet, you killed him. I wonder what he's going to do to people who killed him. Hmm. But all who call on the name of the Lord, on this same guy, all who call on the name of the Lord, Shall be saved. Okay, so what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Uh, Well, he finishes it, verse 37. So, based upon his whole understanding of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, he says, Now, when they heard this, it's the end of his sermon. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. What do you, listen, what do you do? What do you do when you hear the news that 
You are a guilty, rotten sinner who deserves eternal judgment, but the one who you have offended is actually the same one who sent his son for you. He should judge you, but instead he, he seeks to forgive. He's both Lord and Christ, deliverer. He's, he's, he wants to deliver you if you call upon his name. What does it look like to call upon his name? Well, the first thing is you've got to be cut to the heart. What does that mean? Okay, so um, this guy called me on the phone on a Tuesday a few years ago. So I used to take Mondays off, and he called me on the phone on a Tuesday. And he had a story to tell me. He wanted a favor from me. And here's the story he told me. He said, okay, so I came to the church this last week. First time I've ever been to the ch your church. But I was going with my girlfriend who used to attend your church, and she wanted to go back. What you need to know, though, is that my girlfriend is still married to another guy in your church. So what you've got is this woman who's already still married who's cheated on her husband with this other guy. And so they came to church at a different hour than the ch the." the, the the one who's been cheated on came to. So we came to church. And we were sitting there and she had her hand on my hand. We were kind of cuddling, lovey-dovey. And you preached a sermon about David and Bathsheba. And I did. It was just the next sermon in line. And the story of David and Bathsheba is basically about sexual sin. So this guy's sitting there, and he says, you started in on this sermon, and I, my girlfriend's hand started to kind of move off my hand halfway, and then further off it, and eventually, you know how women get, he said, they get, I got the cold shoulder. He said, I was trying to like reach over and saying, what's wrong? And she just would not have it. She was brushing me away. As soon as the service was over, she stood up, and she walked straight out. He was like walking after her. And she gets in the car, said nothing for a few minutes, and then she said, I can't do this. And he said, cool, I didn't like church either. But she said, no, 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 I don't mean church. I mean this with you. I'm a married woman. I, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I'm, I'm a Christian woman. She went back to the house, packed up all her things, left and went back to her husband that day. Now... He calls me on Tuesday morning, and he said, first thing, Tuesday morning, and he said, um, look, I know that you preachers, like, you like to say big things and stuff, so could you just call her on the phone and just say you didn't really mean it? And, and I said, yeah, sure. How much money do you have? No, I did not say that at all, at all, at all. I, I, said, I was like, no. But what happened to her? What do we say? What, what, what happened to her? Oh, she, she was cut to the heart. Listen, repentance and turning back to God actually starts with being cut to the heart. You, you know what that's like, right? That deep-seated uneasiness. It's almost like you kind of just feel sick. You've got to turn around. You just... You've got to turn around. You've got to change something. You know that you have to change something. That's how it starts. She was cut their heart and then said to Peter, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, this is what all these people were asking, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and all who are far off. 
everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Do you see this, though? What shall we do? Repent. Be baptized. What does that mean? What does it mean to repent? What do you mean repent? Well, the word actually means to turn around, around from the direction you, you are heading. It's really interesting, by the way, that this is brought up here, isn't it? I mean, if somebody came to you and said, I, I don't, I don't, what do I do to be saved? Most of us would end up saying, well, you know, you should receive Jesus. I've been to, you ever been to the churches that have what we call big time altar calls and they come from, I went to a church in, in, in California at one point. I've been to lots of churches where this happens and uh, they call people forward to the front. Uh, this one church, the guy was calling people forward to the front. There was no re- the reason he was scared to come to the front was had nothing to do with sin. It had nothing to do with repentance. It just had to do that if you want, if you want to part with Jesus, I think is what he said. If you want to part with Jesus, come forward. Not apart from him, but you know what? With him. So they came forward. Now, here's the thing. The guy who was in front, he was a former NFL football player. And so everybody who came forward kind of squeezed through the middle and, like, shook his hand. You know, getting up there. Ooh, I touched his hand. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if they're all going forward because they want to repent and be baptized. Well, no. We usually, when we talk about this, we say, come forward. Because you, you should add Jesus on to your already busy life, right? He's kind of like a necklace. He's an accessory. But that's not what Peter says. Peter says, listen, if you want Jesus, you've got to turn away from all that you are and turn toward to him who will be all that you are. This happens in the Old Testament, guys. Seriously, all over the place, this happens. Uh, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God for he will abundantly pardon him. Forsake his way. Abandon his thoughts. I'm going in this direction. And all of a sudden I get cut to the heart that this is not the right direction. And so I pivot and I go back toward. I forsake my way. I forsake my thoughts. And I turn toward what I ought to be turning for. That. That's repentance. And so maybe an image. Okay, so let's pretend that instead of wearing a mariner's, a godly mariner's shirt today, I wore an evil demonic Yankee shirt. Amen? (laughs) Oh, there's no question that they're from the devil. Okay? (laughs) So I wear this evil Yankee shirt. And I come out this morning and I say, hey, honey, I'm going to go to the church. And she says, you're going to wear the devil's shirt to church? Like, you know how sometimes guys, wives do that? This is the way they communicate to you. Your shirt's bad. You're going to wear that? And you're like, I thought I would. That's why it's on. So you have a moment here. You you have a moment to repent. You're going in a direction toward Yankee supporting, and then you realize that's wicked and evil, and I ought to forsake that. And you turn back, and you're a Mariner supporter, right? You move back toward that direction. You're cut to the heart. It, It... It affects your mind so that you think, no, I don't like what it is that I'm doing. And then it works itself out in your actions. From heart to head to hands. That's repentance. It's no no good if I'm wearing the Yankee shirt and I say, man, I totally agree with you. And then I think I should probably change my shirt and then I keep wearing it. 
No. Heart to head to hands. Remember the story about the prodigal son? He, he, he goes to his dad, give me all the money. He takes off. He, wild living. I'm going to live it up, man. And then he runs out of money and all his friends leave. And next thing you know, he's eating pig slop after the pigs eat it. And at one moment, eating the pig slop, he comes to himself. Uh, but when he came to himself, what is that? It's almost like he was cut to the heart. And he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? I, but I, I perish here with hunger. I'll arise. Look at the plan in his head. I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And, and then he arose, right? Worked itself out in his hands. And he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. That's what repentance looks like. It's not cheap. If you're cut to the heart, repent and be baptized. See, that's a weird one, isn't it? Be baptized, because all of us are like, yeah, you should repent and pray a prayer. Right? Isn't that what we tell everybody to do? Come forward, pray a prayer, and now you're saved. But Peter doesn't say that. Peter says, repent and be baptized. Why be baptized? Well, baptism is kind of what we call an initiation rite. Do you know how they take the cow and they put the, the brander and they shove it in his bomb and it says, Bucknam, that's my cow. That's it. Baptism is basically getting branded with Jesus. You go under the water... Dying to your old life, you're raised up in union with Christ so that everything that happened to him now happened to you and everything that will happen to him will happen to you. If he rose from the dead, you get to rise from the dead. Dead to yourself, alive to Christ. Branded. That's what baptism is. It's for people who come and they repent of their sins because they know that it was wicked and wrong. And now this is their public demonstration, guys. This is their public demonstration for what it means to be a Christian. It's you declaring, I want to be branded with him forever. Tattoo me, baby, into the club. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. So if you want to follow Jesus, the response isn't pray a prayer, although praying prayers is great. It's repent and be baptized. 3,000 of them did it then, man. What do you think? Let's maybe add to the number today. So we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, we want to invite you to be baptized today. If it is your heart that you want to repent, that you've been cut to the heart by Jesus at any point and you've not been baptized, we're calling you. You want to repent? Turn away from your old life and be baptized and declare that, no, I'm with him. Man, we got, some sh we got shirts and we got shorts and we got towels and we got water and we got pastors. Like, it's all here. And you're, you're like, well... I wanted to do it while it was special. Why don't you do it while Jesus calls you to do it? It's special now. 
Um, yeah, but I had, when I was a kid, I got baptized. Listen, I got to tell you, man, I was baptized as a kid, but you didn't get baptized. It's not what baptism is. Baptism is something you do based upon the, your profession of faith. You can profess it now. Your parents did something for you. God bless them. That's awesome. I'm thankful that your parents did it for you. They did it for me too. But I'm telling you that you're not going to stand before God one day and say, you should, you should honor my parents' wishes for me. No. No, no, no. He's going to ask you, what do you want? Come if you repent and you want to cast your lot with Jesus. I just want to finish this whole thing with this one quote. I started with Jonathan Edwards. I gave you like his hard statement. And here's the end of his sermon that they never got to hear. And now you have an extraordinary opportunity. A day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open. And he stands calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. A day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you're in are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him who has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood. And they're rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. You have an extraordinary opportunity. So if you'd like to be baptized, you can come forward at all of our campuses right now. We're going to sing some songs. There'll be people up front who can meet you and instruct you where to go next. Let's cast our lot with Jesus because we've repented from our sins. Amen.